In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If and when you're able to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, certainly you'll make your way up north to this area around the Sea of Galilee. West of there is the hilltop town of Nazareth, and in between the two, among other things, is the town of Cana. Perhaps you've seen the, um, the, the treasure that people bring back from Cana. You'll discover it for yourself um, it's very thoughtful and, and quite innovative of the, uh, the merchants there in Cana um, to bottle the bad wine um, in commemoration of the, the wine that was served first at that wedding in preparation for uh, the wine that our Lord would make miraculously out of water. That wine you cannot buy, but you can buy the bad wine that was served first at that wedding. Um, so just a Buyer beware, caveat emptor. The wedding feast of Cana is the third epiphany. We're already in green, but the church has always regarded this uh, Sunday as um, a necessary part of the events following our Lord's birth, preceded by uh, the baptism of the Lord which isn't always on a Sunday, but it's on the 13th. Fortunately, this year, the 13th was a Sunday. Prior to that, Epiphany, again, always on the 6th, not always a Sunday, but it was this year. We're fortunate to have these, these successions of Sundays, and even all the regular Masses um, have, the same, um, have the same gospel reading of the wedding feast at Cana. The first reading even uh, imitates the, the way in which the various gifts of the Holy Spirit are described by St. Paul, whether in his letter to the Romans or in his letter to the Corinthians. The wedding feast of Cana has some very interesting details, which are worth mentioning just to set the stage. There is in your, um, in your Latin missals uh, a very simple expression, which in English almost inevitably um, uh, is translated in a way that l l easily leads us astray. Um, and what we've provided here in your booklet. The mother said to him, they have no wine, non habet vinum. And Jesus said to her, woman, what is that to you and to, to me and to thee? Quid est tibi et miki? My hour is not yet come. At least in this older English translation, we have some sense of uh, agreement. It's not an argument. And Our Lady doesn't even ask him to do anything. She only tells the servants to do whatever our Lord instructs. Moreover, when our Lord... Um, makes this uh, reference to his hour. Um, we need to understand what, um, what the hour is. He'll use the same expression to refer to the hour of his glory, the hour of his death and resurrection. 
the hour for which he came. Why is that hour referenced here several years earlier at the wedding feast at Cana? Well, not only is this the beginning of our Lord's public ministry, because this is when they started to write down what he did. In fact, they started writing down what he did several decades later. Rather, this is the event that started to make his life public. This was his first miracle. It's only the Gnostic Gospels that describe our Lord turning clay into pigeons as a young boy, doing other mischievous or self-aggrandizing tricks. No such thing is happening here. It's an act of generosity and more, as you well know. His hour has begun now because he is a marked man, both to the evil forces of the world and the evil forces of the underworld. He was perhaps a curiosity before, a perfect gentleman, incredibly smart, inquisitive. But now he's done something that's beyond curious. He has shown that there is power within him, power that is beyond natural. The devil knows that he is not one of his Therefore, he is now a marked man. It won't take long before a few miracles, a few healings, and loose lips cause him to have to hide his presence and to go even in disguise. It's good to note that we're in the second chapter of the Gospel of John. St. John doesn't concern himself with the nativity but goes directly to John the Baptist and the baptism in the Jordan and the very next event after the 40 days in the desert, the wedding feast of Cana. The vast majority of John's gospel is concerned with our Lord's last journey to Jerusalem before his death and resurrection. It's the whole purpose of John's gospel. So with that in mind, Consider how this is an epiphany. It's not just an epiphany that he has supernatural power, although that's worthy in and of itself. This is the reason why his apostles began to really believe in him, as opposed to trust John the Baptist that he is the Lamb of God. He began to do the things that showed not only his power, but also his goodness. Those who wouldn't believe in him acknowledged his power, but rejected that he was good. They, in fact, insisted that he was of the devil's cohort. But as we look at the sequence of epiphanies, consider this possibility, or at least this meditation At the first epiphany, at the Adoration of the Magi, we find out what he is. 
He is God to be worshipped with gold. He is a priest who will offer sacrifice. And he is the one to be sacrificed. At the second epiphany, at the baptism in the Jordan, we find out who he is. He is the Son of God. The beloved Son, the only begotten Son of God the Father. And today is revealed what he has come to do. He has come to take the natural and make it supernatural. He has come to take what will only lead to death and to impart eternal life. To the Samaritan woman at the well, he will promise water that will leave her never again thirsty. And so when our Lord has come, not just to make marriage sacred and to raise it to the level of a sacrament when both husband and wife are baptized, adopted children of God, he has come to make all things new. He has come to take your ordinary and to make it divine. He has come to take bread and wine and make it his body and blood. Our contribution is the ordinary. When that contribution is is humble and simple, like that of the Blessed Virgin Mary, there's no limit to what God will do with that. When we try to pretend that what we are offering is important, and vital, and necessary, and indispensable, and really special, and ours, it gets complicated. St. Paul's letters, both in um, the ancient rite and the modern rite, very deliberately want the gifts of the Holy Spirit mentioned uh, when we mark this third epiphany. And it, it makes sense because God has come to sanctify. Christ has come to make holy what is not only fallen, but even he's come to do more than simply restore what was lost by sin. He's come to imbue with supernatural gifts what are even beyond Adam and Eve. What gets in the way of that? What impedes the work of the Holy Spirit? Not only our own sinfulness, but even our unwillingness to become more than ordinary, our unwillingness to be be sanctified. We don't want to be extraordinary. 
Well, the good news is most of us have nothing to fear. Even if we became holy, we wouldn't stick out. Don't worry. God doesn't turn you into the life of the party if all of a sudden you're a holy person. He doesn't necessarily give you the, you know, the gift of, of preaching or the gift of healing necessarily. He will make you holy. There are as many different saints as there are sets of fingerprints. Goodness gracious, in the same week we celebrate St. Agnes, 11, 12, 13 years old when she resisted the um, Roman authorities and and St. Paul, who was famous for killing Christians. We celebrate them in the same week. We resist the gifts of the Holy Spirit by wanting one in particular, as though uh, the gift will um, be for our benefit. Or as though we'll be able to pretend that it's because of our, our diligence that we have this particular gift. Now, God chooses which gifts to whom. And he always chooses that it will benefit others. This is different, of course, from that category of supernatural visitation where a word is spoken to you or something is given to you to see, and that's meant for you, not necessarily meant for publication. When you are given a gift, as St. Paul describes them, that is for the good of the church. What also impedes the receiving of these gifts is when we would rather be just barely holy, but not a target, not a marked man. We don't want our hour to have begun. We don't want the forces of the world or the underworld to try to ruin us. And so we make an unholy bargain to be just barely mediocre and meander our way to purgatory. But many of us also resist, resist the gifts of the Holy Spirit because we fear that it will make us boring and bland and neutered. And nothing further could be, could be not further from the truth. What's boring and tedious? Sin. But to, to, to be sanctified is to become who, who God made you to be. Is to recognize that God made you not just to be an ordinary natural being without fault. God made you in order to divinize you, in order to make you almost like him. And so as we consider what afflict us, when we consider... Um, so many of the problems that bring us to prayer, personal, family, the church, the world. When we get down on ourselves even, 
How easy is it for us to think in, in worldly terms, right? People aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. People know better. Why did I do that? I shouldn't have said that. I knew better than to have said that. When we think only in these worldly terms, we're only asking for more determination or we're acting as though the only thing lacking is, is grit. We end up sounding like the, the football coach who at the end of a drubbing, refusing to admit that his players were totally outclassed by far superior athletes. His coaching staff was dwarfed by the brilliance of the opposing bench. He puts together paltry excuses about how they prepared well and practiced well and had a good game plan they just didn't execute, as though the only missing is a little bit of extra effort. That's not what we're up against. In any of these arenas, personal, family, church, the world, We are up against forces that, are, forces that are far greater than any of us and all of us together. So instead of praying that God come and just make those people do what they're supposed to do, we need to pray that God send the Holy Spirit. We need to pray that God's, that God's servants, even his fallible servants who are prone to mistake, that they somehow be vessels of the Holy Spirit and, and God wield his power through them. And through us. So we pray to be open to whatever the Holy Spirit has for us, for the good of others, knowing that even becoming completely open to the Holy Spirit won't mean we will become perfect in the way we would want to become perfect. We won't necessarily be better drivers or better at math or better at doing the dishes or at homework or at the things that easily annoy us about ourselves or each other. But if we are filled with faith and hope and charity, what God does through these earthen vessels will be far more remarkable than if he turned us into perfect little robots. Ask then for the Holy Spirit and make no condition and hold no reservation. Breathe in us, O Holy Spirit, that all our thoughts may be holy. Act in us, O Holy Spirit, that all our work too may be holy. Draw our hearts, O Holy Spirit, that we love but what is holy. Strengthen us, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard us then, O Holy Spirit, that we always may be holy. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.